Hello, 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 and welcome to the first official episode of the Economical Rice Podcast, where over here we hope to serve you the grains of capitalism. I'm your host, Danny, and today we're going to be talking about financial literacy, or how much we should know about finance. So, on this topic, I'm going to be covering two broad questions, the first of which being, why is there a need to be financially literate? Why do we need a basic understanding of finance or economics? And next, the question of, if it is so important to be financially literate, then whose responsibility is it? Or who, you know, who should be the one ensuring that we, uh, have, we are financially literate or we are financially capable to make good decisions? Okay, so having answered these two questions, we'll move on. We'll look at a brief uh, overview of uh, the condition of financial literacy in Singapore. So a lot of content to go through today, and uh, we'll, dump, we'll jump straight in to the first question. So why is there a need to be financially literate? Well, if you look at it from an abstract level, being financially literate means having the knowledge to manage your personal wealth. So this consists not only uh, this consists of technical knowledge. Such as, uh, you know, having, knowing about, knowing your savings rates, knowing credit cards, knowing the technical parts of the credit cards, uh, knowing how to budget, uh, knowing what different, different insurance products may offer, all the way to different investment opportunities, uh, such as having, such as equities or such as bonds and what have you. So ideally, financial literacy arms you with the tools and concepts that you need to make informed economic decisions although ultimately you may choose not to right because we are not perfect uh perfect rational beings we are human and from time to time even armed with good uh, good information we may still make bad decisions so moving on on a more tangible note singapore is one of the most expensive cities in the world to live in um and I'm sure many of you have seen this going around in the newspapers or in social media, how, how this agency, the Economist Intelligence Unit's Worldwide Cost of Living Survey, they reported that Singapore is the costliest city in the world to live in and has been for the past four years. Now, they also reported that this is due mainly in part to Singapore having the world's highest cost of car ownership. If you didn't know, in Singapore, in order to drive a car on the road, you need to purchase something for the car, which is called a Certificate of Entitlement. And the average cost of that in 2017 for this certificate, or the COE, is $49,000. So to, 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 drive a car in Singa- to drive a car in Singapore, you need to purchase the entitlement on top of the, of the cost of the car as well. So it's a huge, huge cost. However, deciding whether to stick to just using your public transport you know, maybe you maybe you look at the cost of the car and you thought, hey, I could do I could do without paying that amount, and and just stick to public transport because it's so abundant, it is so convenient, so efficient here in Singapore. You know, making this decision is not so straightforward, right? Because it depends on a lot of different factors as well. It depends on on the line of work you may be doing. You know, if you're a sales if you're a salesman, if you're a salesperson, you're going out, you have to meet clients, you have to run around to different places the whole day maybe having a car is much more efficient way of doing things than, you know, relying on public transport. And also, uh, another factor, maybe if you have a family or you have, you know, maybe a big family of a big ex- extended family, they need to go maybe to visit a hospital, they need to go buy groceries, they need to go do this, or you need to send your kids to the hospital or the kids to the, to school. 
uh, having a car may be a lot better than sticking to public transport. And, and okay, so moving on, uh, talking about public housing, um, of course, uh, that, that is a big contributing factor as to why Singapore is one the most expensive or the costliest city to live in. Uh, it's because Singapore is not a very big country. It's really, really tiny, tiny island. So land is pretty scarce. We have a lot of people. So, you know, demand, um, overwhelming supply, that tends to bring up the cost of property or housing. And although the Singapore government does offer plenty of subsidies for public housing for the locals here, uh, individuals still have to make plenty of decisions uh, regarding, say, the amount of the loan, who to borrow from, whether you borrow from the local housing agency, the Housing Development Board, or whether you borrow from like a, a bank or something. And of course, you have to decide, you have to consider the value of the house and ultimately how much of your income you're going to be paying, you're going to be making to, to cover your mortgage payments. Okay, so now we've covered those uh, factors. We're going to be talking about another thing here as to why you need, why is there a need to be financially literate. And this is more of a general, this is more on a general tone rather than just uh, to Singapore specifically, is that the growing life expectancy uh, means that there are increasing costs to be had during retirement. Of course, with the investment of, in technology, in medicine, this improves the standard of living for a lot of people, but it is not a free thing to be had, right? With improved standard of living, people live longer, but as you live longer, uh, there's, you increase, increase, increase the chance that you may get sick, uh, and that increases the chance that you, increases the cost that you have to pay for healthcare. Also increases the amount that you have to cover, uh, so that you can be fiscally comfortable all the way throughout your retirement. So particularly, I looked at the report here by Marsh and McLennan in 2000, where in 2016, and they presented what I thought was some really harsh realities on the rising cost of healthcare. So they found that in the Asia Pacific region, it is currently the fastest aging region in the world. And they estimated that by 2030, there will be a 71% rise in the number of people aged 65 and above. In Singapore, the proportion of elderly will go up from 11% to a full one-fifth or 20%. And at the current rate of medical inflation or how, you know, the rate at which healthcare costs keep rising each year, the report estimates that healthcare costs will go up tenfold over the next 15 years to approximately 49 billion US dollars. So, if we expect the government to continue subsidizing healthcare as they've been doing for locals, this trend is worrying as it points to, you know, it sort of indicates that there will be higher healthcare bills in the future, but at the same time, because more of the population is uh, elderly and not contributing, there will be a lower tax base, a lower amount of people who are working, contributing to the tax revenue that government uses to fund the health bill. So in the long run, this becomes more and more unsustainable, meaning that all things equal, either future workers have to work harder and contribute more of their income to, or that elder, future elder, elderly patients will get less healthcare benefits. Now, to this extent, individuals should not only rely on government or employee pension programs to cover their retirement costs. You need to, you need to be financially literate so that you're able to budget properly, so that you're able, you're able to have 
uh, proper, you know, rainy day funds or proper funding so that you can be fiscally comfortable uh, by the time you retire. And of course, there is a deeper underlying point emphasizing this, and that was the one about trade-offs that I was making, that nothing comes for free, right? Even though there's been a lot of investment, you have to look at what other consequences that might lead to. Okay, so if you have rising healthcare bill, if you have a lot more people getting older, what is the other? What is the other side of it? Who has to come up with the funding? Who has to to make sacrifices? Now, moving on from the rising healthcare costs, there. Now, the the last two points I talked about, um, they were mainly talking about, you know, how financial literacy can help protect you on the downside, or how they can ensure that you do not go broke or you do not go bankrupt, right? You know, you you sort of like uh, telling you you need to have proper plans or you need to consider all, all these things so that you can be protected. Now, this, this next point here is talking about upside, uh, your, your, your upside, um, upside benefits to knowing about financial literacy, or rather, in, in a different way, what are the potential benefits that you're missing out on if you are uh, financially Ill- illiterate, right? So on a, on a general note, I'm going to label this point here, there is a large cost to being a traditional saver. So, particularly in Singapore, for individuals who are a bit more conservative, a bit more, a bit more risk averse, if you think you are financially capable, but only put your capital in savings accounts or low risk products, you risk missing out on future gains. Now, while some, some might say it is safer to leave your money in the savings account, you know, maybe you've heard stories from your friends or your relatives talking about how some banker convinced them to put their money in a unit trust or something and how they, they lost all their, their, their investment over time, that, that made you more risk averse. If you, if, if you, if you thought, if you thought about that, uh, you have, there, there is a cost, there is a cost to, if you thought about that and you said, okay, I want to be on the safe side. I don't want to, I don't want to risk putting my money in invest, investments. You have to consider that there is a cost to this safety. Right. And this cost of safety is exacerbated because of compounding. Now, look at this uh, recent study here by Standard Chartered, where they mentioned that about 53% of Singaporeans rely on savings accounts to meet their savings goals, as compared to about 16% using equities. So, okay, so, so what I'm going to do now, so, so, so that just really drives home the point about how risk-averse and how conservative Singaporeans are. Singaporeans are, right? So now next, I'm going to drive home the point about really what are the costs of how much you're really missing out on. And I'm going to be using a hypothetical example here. All right. So for the past 10-year period from uh, 2007 to 2016, average bank savings rates, savings deposit rate in Singapore was about 0.14% per annum. Pitiful, minuscule amount, right? So if you use this, if you use a simple measure such as the rule of 72, which estimates the amount of time it takes for an, an initial uh, investment to double by taking the numerator of 72 dividing by the denominator of your savings rate. So if you use 72 divided by 0.14% or you get 514 years. It needs 514 years for a single dollar invested to become $2 at the rate of 0.14%. Now, compare this to the estimated returns for the straight times index or the alternative, right? So instead of putting it in a savings account, you may, you may put it in just a, in the market index or something that tracks 
like the market. Uh, so if you if you did this, and what I did what I did to track the returns of the the local market here, the straight times index, was I used the returns of the SPDR STI ETF, which is used as a proxy for the the STI's performance. So the market gained about 2.86% over the 10-year period ending in 31st March 2017. That means that using the rule of 72, you will take about 25 years to double your initial investment. Now think about that, right? 514 years to double a single dollar using, if you put it in a savings account, compared to only 25 years if you just put it in like a broad market index, right? So think about what this means for, you know, saving for retirement. If you put it in a savings account, because it's generating such little interest for you, basically, if you have a fund, if you have a retirement goal of say, okay, I want to retire and have a million dollars, you have to work and save for every single dollar of that million dollars. Whereas if you have, if you had invested a certain amount in say the, the, the SPDR ETF or the, you know, in the local Singapore stock market, you you can you can have that investment do and do the work for you generate some returns so that you don't have to contribute every single dollar of that a million dollars of course you have to work and save as well but you have other assets that are contributing and generating returns for you so this is you know this is the cost of safety this is what you are missing out how much potential gain is lost because you were too conservative or because locals were too risk averse or too conservative to invest so, and you have to think about, is foregoing all these potential gains worth it to maintain some sense of safety? You know, you can have a better life or you can work less to have a, a better future if you had just been a bit more resilient and just just left your money in investment instead of taking out whenever you lost it, right? And, 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 and you know, this is the, the cost to safety. Now, of course, to be fair, the conservative savers, instead of just putting their money in savings accounts, they could have used, you know, their capital to start businesses instead, right? Or to be more entrepreneurship, which is not included and not covered in the report. So they could have worked. Uh, they, they they could have uh, used their capital, used their cash, put it in in, in uh, uh, use it to buy machinery or use it to develop, you know, new processes for their business, and that that in that way they would they would generate returns as well. All right, so. We have answered the first question about why you need to be financially literate or, you know, talking about how you need to protect yourself or how, how you don't want to miss out on all these gains. So now we're going to answer the second question. So if financial literacy is so important in today's society, is formal financial education necessary? So this question is a little bit misleading because it is actually making the dip, deeper point about who should be finance, who should be responsible for financial literacy. So, of course, we begin by asking if the government should be responsible for everyone's financial literacy. So, as, uh, from, as maybe because from a surface point, for surface level, we might think that, you know, hey, the government sets all the rules, right? The government sets uh, how much we have to contribute to our CPF. The government says how, when we can take this out. The government says, you know, uh, how much you have to contribute to taxes. The government sets basically the rules of the, the economic gain, a uh, game in Singapore, so you might think, hey, if they set the rules, they should at least teach us or at least ensure that we know uh, we know how, how to play the game as well, right? So maybe you might think this way. So so maybe it might think, yes, formal financial education in this sense is necessary. 
Okay, so we're going to approach this 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 question is of uh, of whether financial formal financial education is necessary in a de- sort of debate format in a yes and no. We're going to answer. We're going to look at the yes side first before looking at the no side. So on the yes side, yes, formal financial education is necessary. The first reason being that financial literacy programs help individuals make better decisions. So there was a policy brief conducted by the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development where they noted that intervention programs uh, designed specifically for certain financial decisions, that they are effective in helping individuals make the right decisions. So intervention programs here, what they mean is that programs, uh, they are designed specifically right before a person makes a key decision, such as having mortgage counseling before people take out a loan, or such as having like a workshop or a seminar uh, before before employers discuss maybe pension plans with uh, their their employer their employees. Now another reason why formal financial education is necessary is that research there's been research conduct, conducted by the financial industry financial industry regulatory authority uh, investor education foundation and they have found that there have been notable improvements in the credit scores and delinquency rates for young adults where financial education standards have been mandated most rigorously. Now, in the United States, uh, there are certain states whereby they make it mandatory for schools to include like a personal finance course in their high school education or like an economics course. So the the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, or FINRA, they, they conducted a study. They found that, you know, there was an improvement in the credit scores and delinquency rates or sort of, you know, uh, they, they, they were able to pay their bills on time. They were able to uh, take on less credit card debt. They were able to manage their, their budget or their finances better after, after they gone through, uh, in, in places where they manage, where mandated these education standards most rigorously. So these programs, they include features such as having half-year standardized courses in personal finance in the Idaho state, or having a standardized, standardized testing on personal finance concepts in the state of Texas, or requirements for personal finance training of teachers in the state of Georgia. Now, the last reason why formal, why someone might think, uh, or why, you know, to, to back up the claim that formal financial education is necessary, is that financial literacy improves inclusion and access. So this is evidenced by a study that the World Bank did in Indonesia, where they found that financial literacy was a strong predictor for formal savings, loans, and insurance services. Now, the study also conducted a financial literacy program, and they found that there was a disproportionate benefit, disproportionate benefit to uneducated and financially illiterate households. So they benefited way more than the general population as a whole. So you think if you think about this, you might you 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 might say that oh you know these financial programs really help these low income households, really help them, you know, uh, consider that uh, consider options of putting their money in in a savings bank, uh, and consider you know the options of oh hey they can they can uh, access capital access credit through a bank now, you know or where, where they couldn't have before, right? So. Therefore, considering considering the benefits of financial literacy programs, the number of benefits we talked about earlier, why have they not been made, you know, fully mandatory, right? Why is it 
as the Council of Economic Education in the United States reports that only 20 states mandate personal finance courses, while only 17 states mandate economics courses in high school. And what about Singapore? You know, if you are a student studying in Singapore, can you think of a time where in school whereby they forced you to sort of uh, take a course or take a test in personal finance? And I mean, personally, I think the only thing thing I can think of was that I took uh, uh, an economics. I took economics in my my junior college. But even that, that was elective as well. So, you know, why aren't there, you know, formal subjects in personal finance to teach young children about savings accounts and budgeting? And why is, why, why is economics, you know, why are subjects like, why, why are subjects like economics elective and not mandatory? So in answering this question, you know, maybe I thought then, hey, maybe the picture of financial literacy is not so clear after all. So now, now we're going to transition to the other side of the question, right? The no side of no formal financial education is not necessary. So the first question being that, uh, the, sorry, the first, uh, first response being that if you look at it from a practical standpoint, such widespread imp- implementation is going to cost a lot of money. And this is mainly in the form of your structural costs, right? Because if you want to implement formal financial education, you're going to have to hire a lot more teachers who are financial capable, financially capable, or you're going to have to train them. In a country such as the United States, you know, which already has significant budget deficits, they already have huge trouble or a lot of trouble getting funding uh, for other social programs such as the national parks or the arts or healthcare, you know, let alone <laughs> let alone trying to expand education, which is already such a huge uh, national expense, to include financial literacy as well. And further, from uh, if you're looking at it from a more philosophical or more political standpoint, education funding is already a significant national expense in Singapore as well as the United States. So if you include financial literacy, if you're going to expand that national expense, this is going to siphon funding from other sources, such as healthcare, such as infrastructure, such as defense. This is going to force us to ask the difficult question of, uh, you know, which would we rather have less of? And it's more of, uh, it's going to run into a lot of political roadblocks. It's not going to be, I, I, tell you, I tell you for sure, it's not going to pass through easily, right? And, and of course, it's going to, it's going to, and, and if you consider it more, it's going to delve into the further the, the the philosophical question of if the government has an obligation to ensure your financial knowledge and uh, financial outcome, what what will be the implication of, of 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 that? You know, what will be left of entrepreneurs and hard workers and people who chase their dreams if uh, we can see, if if individual if Individuals just say that, oh, the government is responsible for financial outcomes. They decided the rules, they decide the rules of the game. They, so in, in essence, they decide how well we're going to be able to do in the future. You know, if, if you say yes, that formal financial education is necessary, or yes, that the, the government is responsible for how we do economically going forward or our financial well-being in the future, it, I really feel that it's going to be a disincentive to, to individuals who, who want to who wanna go out and push their dreams, who are daring, who want to try out new ventures, who want to go out and innovate. So you have to consider this. 
and you have to think about and and so and you have to think about all these like different trade-offs that you're making right especially when you're dealing with uh policy policy matters such as this one and so uh so having having answered these uh having responded from the from the practical standpoint and from the political the philosophical standpoint now we're going to be talking about the actual matter at hand here and is the biggest issue with mandating financial education and that is that the supposed benefits are not as clear-cut as they appear to be right so what do i mean mean by this for instance from a methodological standpoint there is no real standardized definition for what financial literacy means or what it entails for individuals okay so this results in no uniform way to measure financial literacy so there was a, or, or, or as this a researcher, Robin Henegger, this describes in his uh, article for Consumer Interests Annual. He described how, you know, the Jumpstart Coalition instrument consisted of 56 survey questions. Rand, another, in, Rand, who was another researcher, he used 48 knowledge-based questions in his survey to assess financial, financial literacy in low-income households. Another group of, another group of research, researchers, Bell, Gorin, and Hogarth, they use 77 questions that are that, that ask the respondents to assess their financial situation. And, and, and at the opposite extreme, uh, this group of researchers, Lusardi and Mitchell, they use just three questions to measure financial literacy. So, so there, is no, <laughs> there is no standardization, no, no agreed upon notion about what uh, financial literacy is or how we should go about measuring it. By extension, there is no uniform way to measure the effects of financial literacy and and what is labeled as beneficial. For example, the previous studies that we talked about, the FINRA Investor Education Foundation, uh, where they use credit scores and delinquency rates to measure outcomes of students. The other study, the World Bank study, they used uh, savings rates, savings rates utilization to measure uh, the the impact of financial uh, their their financial education program, and also the, there was a program here uh, called the Econ Lowdown Program by the St. Louis branch of the United Federal State uh, Federal Reserve or their central bank. So they measured the effectiveness of their program just using economic testing alone. So this lack of stand standardization here uh, among among research really makes it difficult for policymakers to consolidate and compare the findings. You know, or, or in other words, you could say that implementing a mandate on the basis of it being beneficial is really not, it's not going to be easy. <laughs> it's going to encounter a lot of resistance when you can't even answer the question, when you're not even clear about what beneficial really means. <laughs> right. So moving on. So I noticed also that there was a, a real tendency here for institutions that advocate for mandated financial literacy programs that they tended to presume that such programs equate with better financial outcomes. So in reality, academic research only points to correlations between financial literacy rates and financial outcomes. So if you presume now, just because you have a financial literacy program, that means that automatically there's going to be a benefit uh, in, in, in the form of better financial outcomes. 
This presumption essentially takes for granted the key, key point here on whether these financial literacy programs are effective at increasing financial literacy rates. This point was brought up in a panel discussion from the American Council on Consumer Interests on evaluating outcomes of personal finance education, where it was noted that most financial education programs with structured curricula assume that gains in financial knowledge render an individual financially literate and subsequently result in the individual making effective financial decisions. So, effectively, in order for the policymaker to implement a broad education program, if you're just going to go on this presumption uh, that just because I implement, you know, better, uh, implement an education program, that means that, oh, everyone in the program is going to immediately have better financial outcomes. That thing is going to be, is going to be, <laughs> is going to be shut down in, in, uh, in, in legislation so hard. So in order for the policymaker to, to seriously want to implement such a program, he has to be able to answer these two separate questions, right? And these, the, the, the first question being, how effective is the education program, financial education program, at teaching financial education or at making individuals financially literate? As well as the second question, how effectively is financial literacy or having financial knowledge at leading to individuals making effective financial outcomes? Okay, so these are the, the two, two key questions that we need to answer. Hence, so I'm going to answer these, I'm going to try and answer these two questions with the aid of research, of course. In the first question, I found that there really is a sort of conflicting picture here being being painted uh, based on based on the studies that have been done in the matter. For instance, the St. Louis Fed study that I mentioned before, the econ lowdowns, uh, the study that reported on the on the effects of their econ lowdown program, it was done in 2013. They found that students who had received personal finance instruction received five to seven points higher on tests that students than students who did not take the curriculum. Now they continued on the their their study for a second year, and in the second year of the study, they found that the difference between students who had taken and students who had not taken this uh this uh, financial uh literacy program, this difference in testing jumped by ten points. And notably Students who were taught by experienced instructors scored 15 points higher than those who were not offered the curriculum, which is really promising, right? Because it not only says that that they're, they're, that the students who who take these courses end up on average scoring better than those who did not. It also says that it also points that you know teachers who who have become more experienced teaching these courses, you know, uh, relative to the first year and the second year. They become they, as they're more experienced, they 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 teach better as well, and it's reflected in the sort of differential between um, those uh, in, in 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 the students who tested uh, from from uh, who who are taught by experienced instructors. Now, however, contrast the results of this study with the large scale biennial survey of high school students, high school seniors carried out by the Jumpstart Coalition for Personal Finance Literacy, which found that students who had taken a high school class in personal finance or money management were no more financially literate than those who have not. And think about that. 
And also that the authors, Mandel and Klein, they did another research of their own. They performed a similar study on a group of high school students and found too that there was no meaningful positive impact for students who took the financial education course despite their school having a reputably excellent personal finance course. So, first question here... (laughs) From from what from what research is available doesn't really answer clearly or definitely the question that doesn't really sort of says yes to the, the question that uh, financial literacy imparts financial knowledge to to young adults or to kids right so that part of the equation is already already a little shaky let's look at the other part talking about if financial literacy or financial knowledge helps lead people to making uh, better decisions. All right, so while numerous studies can point to a positive correlation between financial literacy and financial behavior, it is unclear whether the effect is a causal one or merely incidental. Right, so this is the whole point about correlation, not causation. You know, you want to be careful about if you have if you do like a study and you you sort of see that hey people who who are financially literate tend to have better financial outcomes you know you don't want to make the mistake of saying oh it's because they're financially literate that they are that they have better financial financial outcomes because there might be other external factors that that could contribute into into that causal link right so specifically uh collins pointed out in a paper that behavior change, this researcher Collins, right, he points out in the paper, behavior change uh, results from a combination of attitudes, social norms, and intentions. Key point here, knowledge gains alone are insufficient. So think about that, right? So behavior, so if you, if you want to get people to do, to do better or make better financial decisions, the typical model, the theoretical model says that this, is, this comes from a combination of attitudes, from social norms, and from the person's intentions, or sort of like what, what kind of incentives he has to behave better. It does not, does not just come from having knowledge alone. Of course, this, the, the, the clear example of this is like in, in the case of smokers, right? You you can tell a smoker all you want about, you know, you, if, you, if, you, if you smoke, it's going to lead to all these bad consequences, you're going to die early, earlier, you're going to have lung cancer, whatever, whatever, it's not going to change his, his behavior, even though he has this, you know, even, he, even, he is, if, even if he has the knowledge of it. So therefore, to consider only the correlation between financial literacy and behavior is really to miss out on other key factors that can add more depth to the causal link. For instance, while the World Bank report, the one uh, mentioned earlier, while the World Bank report on financial literacy programs in Indonesia, they found positive effects on ed- uneducated and Ill- illiterate households through their financial literacy program. It also noted that financial incentives have a much larger effect than the financial literacy programs for the general population. Think about that. Incentives, changing your incentives, work better than just teaching people about how to do things in changing behavior. Similarly, a study conducted by the National Endowment for Financial Education uh, that summarized prior research on financial education 
or the impact of financial literacy programs, this study found that timing matters significantly in the effectiveness of financial literacy programs, or more specifically in their study, intervention programs, much like the one where, where I talked about earlier, such as you know mortgage counseling before taking debt, you know, talking about different interest rates or talking about technical details of the product before you make an investment, etc., etc. Now, they also they, they noted that timing matters in the effectiveness, effectiveness of financial literacy programs and that the positive effect diminished over time. So this suggests that individuals who have more incentive to gain from remembering a concept from some financial literacy program to use later in a, to use later in a decision is more likely to remember and benefit from it if it occurred early if it, if you know the decision was closer rather than later which of course says that which which of course emphasizes again that the, the knowledge alone is not the only factor in determining how well the person behaves or or how effective the person makes uh, how effective uh, the person is at deciding on uh, or in making financial decisions. Therefore, the policymaker is unlikely to implement. Therefore, I think, you know, on the whole, the policymaker is unlikely to implement a broad-based financial education program because there are significant structural costs. There will be significant political opposition. There will be significant philosophical uh, opposition as well. And also that there is tremendous uncertainty regarding what the benefits cost benefits consistent and 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 whether financial education programs really ultimately lead to better financial outcomes so then so so the answer to the question should financial should the government be responsible for you know ensuring financial literacy should there be formal financial education programs likely most likely no Right. So now, now we've answered that question. We're going to talk about, you know, the state of uh, financial literacy in Singapore. Maybe get a clue as to if if the government is not going to be the main uh, main one responsible for our financial literacy. Maybe where are the other, where are the other avenues in which we may be, you know, we be held responsible or 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 that we can gain financial, uh, we can make better better. Uh, uh, b- b- better financial decisions, right? So, fortunately, <laughs> and this is quite surprising because of the research I've done, seeing how you know there's no mandated program, Singapore as a whole tends to be quite financially literate. Okay, this is evidenced by consistently high rankings in MasterCard's Financial Literacy Index in the Asia Pacific. And particularly, we topped Singapore topped the index in 2015, which was followed by uh, topped the index, and second was Taiwan, third was New Zealand. Uh, in this study, and uh, in, in this financial literacy index, also noted that Singapore performed relatively well in areas such as basic money management. We were third behind uh, New Zealand and Australia. Performed well in financial planning, fourth behind Taiwan, Thailand, and Malaysia and performed well in investments, where we were fourth behind China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. However, Singaporeans, we did generally poor, relative, relatively well, but generally poorly in areas such as uh, retirement planning and having concepts of 
diversification and inflation. So a bit more about the technical side about financial theory. So how did how did Singaporeans achieve this? You know, especially when there's no formal education requirement that students take economics or personal finance. Uh, you, <laughs> and 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 through my research, and I think and I have to laud Singapore for this. So they actually have a national financial literacy education program, and it is called Money Sense. It was launched a, a while ago. It was launched in two thousand three and operates under the guidance of the Monetary Monetary Authority of Singapore. Now, uh, I'm, going to de- I'm going to be describing these, the, sort of the features of this program, and you can, decide, you can decide for yourself whether this has helped us to become more financially literate, right? So the program initiatives are aimed at equipping Singaporeans with basic knowledge and capabilities to perform four key activities managing cash flow and living within their means, buying a home they can afford, being financially prepared for unforeseen events, and planning ahead and taking steps to have sufficient income for life. Now, these initiatives cover three tiers of financial literacy, and they are Tier 1, basic money management, skills in budgeting and saving, as well as the responsible use of credit. Tier 2, financial planning, skills and knowledge to plan for long-term needs. Tier three, investment know-how or knowledge about different investment products and skills for investing. And wouldn't you know it, these are coincidentally the three categories that Singapore performed relatively well in, in the MasterCard Index, which I talked about earlier. So then the way in which uh, MoneySense reaches Singaporeans is through broad-based national media, discussing certain topics and avenues such as newspaper info ads in the television uh, in the television or through different smaller radio segments also they conduct seminars and public talks through the my my money seminars program and they disseminate in, in information through money sense through the money sense website and facebook now they also conduct talks and workshops at the workplace so you can actually so so this uh, money sense the money sense uh, agency they they cooperate and they partner up with Singapore Polytechnic the uh, Singapore Polytechnic and you can actually ask them to come down to your to your workplace to host to hold like a talk or a workshop talking about a certain financial topic right and lastly how the how how money sense helps uh, sort of in their way reach out to Singaporeans in, in um, encouraging financial literacy is that they co-fund schools and this could be elementary schools or secondary schools or junior college uh, co-fund schools to organize financial literacy games and workshops for your students. So if you consider sort of the features and the way in which Singapore uh, promotes financial literacy through this Money Sense program, the role of money sense really appears more facilitator than financial knowledge. As in, you, you wouldn't really, as in, it would be really difficult to make the causal claim that, oh, just because we had this, just because we have money sense, therefore a lot of Singaporeans um, are, are, you know, are, are financially literate. It, <laughs> it really, 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 
really, really uh, difficult to make that that causal claim, right? So, in a sense, the government's position, I don't think they, I don't think they seek to force financial knowledge on us for our own good, but rather that they provide the information to those who seek it. So, in this sense, you know, I don't think you can credit uh, national programs that much as a causally for us being financially literate. And rather, <laughs> in a weird roundabout way, don't you think that it is from the individual's point of view themselves, from their own, you know, maybe their own attitudes, maybe from pressures from friends or family, or maybe from their own incentives to, to, to succeed in this uh, economic environment that have led us to, to learn about different things, to learn about, you know, what is the best way, what, what are the best, uh, what what are the bank's best de- deposit rates out there? What are the best investments out there? What are the best ways to reach financial independence or achieve or 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 acquire you know your economic or financial goals? So in this weird roundabout way, uh, <laughs> it is more rather the individual and sort of like the individual as a, as a product of like his attitudes, his uh maybe pressure from friends or family as well as his incentives to to achieve to achieve you know his financial dreams or whatever that makes him financially literate not the not so not so much that that um it is because of like the government uh the the government program or like a national program such in money sense that made us so so and i think this will be helpful going forward for for other agencies or other, you know, you know, if for from a policy making standpoint, is that you not only want to consider knowledge by itself, well, is that you want to consider different ways. If you, if ultimately you want to change behavior, you have to look at it from a different point of view. You have to look at it from the individual itself, and you have to look at look at it about why the individual might want to might want to you know make a better uh, financial decision or why what circumstances are the individual in such that he makes a poor decision of taking out too much debt you know what can be done to to change the the structural environment of the economy such that he doesn't want to do that you know what incentives can you put out for him such that he wants to avoid taking too much debt or such that he can he can pay 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 up on time or such that he can avoid taking too much risk so i think I think going about this way is a much more better approach at, at, at changing behavior. The role of the role of having a, a financial education program, I think it should not be discounted, but you should not use it as your main driver of behavioral change. Rather, I think I think Singapore has got it spot on, right? Singapore is not the easiest world, the easiest country to live in in terms of uh, achieving your financial dreams, or, or because everything is so costly. But in, in but but how does how do I put this? Uh, the government says, "I'm good." This is the rules that we're setting in, right? If you want to succeed, you have to push yourself to succeed, right? We are not going to spoon feed you. However, we're going to be fair and say that okay, here are the rules of the game. Here are what you need to be. Here 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 are the tools and concepts you need to be successful. 
But if you want to to achieve your your, your if you want to, if you want to make good financial decisions, if you want to achieve uh, your financial dreams, if you want to achieve your financial outcomes, that is entirely up to you, as an individual. And I think that is just beautiful, and I think that is the, the most appropriate way to live in, to 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 live in, right? Because because again, bring up the philosophical point. You don't want if if. You have to consider like the trade-off you're making if you're if you're making the claim that the government should be responsible for your financial education, you know, or your financial outcome. Because that means that if they are responsible and they don't want you to to be doing badly, that they did that that they that they get to decide what which banks you get to put your money in, how much you get to take out, how much of the how much of your income uh, that you get to that you get to contribute, or how much how much take-home you pay you get, how much contribute, how much uh, you get to contribute as an income tax and stuff like that. You know, they're going to make all these decisions and essentially these are decisions that, these are decisions and freedoms uh, taken away from the individual, right? So I think the better way to do this and what Singapore is currently doing is that we, <laughs> environment is difficult, but if you want to succeed, uh, you sh- if you want to succeed, the incentive is there for you to do it. The government will be there as a facilitator to, to, to say, here are the tools and tricks and tips that you need to achieve financial independence. All right. So that, that I think will just about do it for today. It's quite a lengthy episode. I really, really, really hoped you enjoyed this one. And I'll see you and I'll see you next week where I talk about more grains of capitalism in our daily lives. Thank you for listening.